0: The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you be our guest. Service times are 9 and 11 a.m. We hope you'd consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting a donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word.
1: Good morning, ACF Church. Good morning. Hey, uh, just glad to see you today. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series called Anchored Soul. And we're just, uh, we're going to open up a conversation here today that's a little bit of a difficult conversation, so I want to prepare you for that. If if you are new here, this is going to feel a little bit more, maybe more like a family meeting than a sermon. Um, we're going to open up this topic of depression. And um, I don't know if you're ready for that. You might have just power slid into church, you threw the kids downstairs, you barely made it upstairs. And uh, I just want to encourage you to to try to be fully present here as we have this conversation. Um, there, there's some people coming in the back. If you guys, just be aware, people are trying to squeeze in. And so if you, uh, if you end up having a, a seat between you, just kind of squeeze together and make some space as people come in. But. Anyway, um, we're going to open up this talk. It's going to be, uh, I think, really good because this isn't a conversation that happens a lot in the church. I've actually already received a couple of emails from people saying, hey, thanks for talking about this. I've had some real struggle in this area and experienced some real freedom in the area of depression, and so we're glad that you're having this discussion. And as I was wrestling with this this topic, uh, preparing for this this week, um, it just occurred to me this this is such a mixed crowd there's some of you in this room that have been deeply affected by depression, and others of you in this room that are completely unaware of how big of a deal this really is uh, not just uh, not just here in our church but in our state in our country it is just the the statistics are just staggering and we're going to talk about those in a minute and I want to tell you I have no disillusionment that i'm going to fix anything here today um, i don't i don't think I can do anything um, other than open up a conversation here in about 45 minutes worth of talking. And I actually have way too much content. I realized I cut down like half of my sermon in first service because there's just so much to talk about in, uh, in the issue of of depression. This, this sermon today I've entitled Lost at Sea. And uh, speaking of lost at sea, I feel like I'm a little underwater right now. I've, I've got a head cold or something. So if, if I sound stuffed up, it's because I am. Uh, so I apologize for that. But Lost at Sea is the topic, uh, is the title today, and the topic is depression. And I can imagine that being lost at sea would be the most hopeless feeling out there. Can you imagine being tossed around by the waves, not knowing which direction to go? No land in sight. I've never been lost at sea, but I can imagine it would just be sheer hopelessness uh, in that situation. And in the church... We there's sort of a stigma with depression. We kind of avoid this conversation. Maybe there's this expectation within the church that when you follow Jesus, it's all good, right? You know, like your life can suck until you meet Jesus and then it's awesome, right? It's all good because you met Jesus, you know, and as a Christian, you have a perfect little family and a perfect little house and you have a perfect little job and, you know, you, you ride unicorns and slide down rainbows and you eat Lucky Charms all day. This, this is the life of the Christian. It's just happy-go-lucky lucky, everything's good. And it's just, it's not reality, is it? Life is tough sometimes. Life is difficult. And this should be an open conversation, I believe, within the church. Because honestly, if you can't come before the church, before the people of God, if you can't come with people that follow Jesus and claim to have him in their hearts and say, listen, my life has been hell. If you can't come to the church and say that, then where can you say it? And so I think we need to have this conversation. I think we need to be honest. Um, man, in, in our society, there's a stigma about this as well. Um, maybe you've seen this play out like on social media, where on social media, if, if, you, if you were to get in a car wreck and break your arm and then post on Facebook, hey, broke my arm, got in a car wreck, what would happen? There would be this flood of messages and, and people would say, oh, I'm, I'm praying for you, I'm with you. All of a sudden people would show up to your house, you know, with casserole, because that's what Christians bring to your house when you're sick, they bring casserole. So you'd have all these casseroles lined up and friends visiting, taking care of your kids, you know, everybody would show up. But if you get on Facebook or social media and say, I am depressed and I feel like nobody cares. Uh, you know what? It'd be like, unfollow that. Uh, I don't want to see that. That's uncomfortable. Uh, There's just kind of a stigma. We just, we're uncomfortable with with mental illness or, or uh, mental instability or struggles when it comes to depression. And so we want to be honest about this topic in the church today. And we're just going to clip the tip of the iceberg as we have this talk. And hopefully it'll open up some good conversations on the ride home or maybe uh, this evening with some friends or some family members about this topic. But we're going to start off by telling a story um, of somebody here within ACF Church that has dealt with this issue, who's been courageous enough just to share her journey with depression and how God has worked through that. And so would you guys watch Malia's story?
0: My name's Malia, I'm the mom of three, a wife of a pastor here at ACF, and I've struggled with depression for the last seven years. I started noticing that I was having um, some struggles with depression. Josh's job wasn't going anywhere and we were really wanting to start having kids, but I was very hesitant on having kids because I was still working full time and a really big desire of my heart was to be able to stay home with our kids um, once we started having a family Um, but we decided to start trying and um, I got pregnant and we had a miscarriage which was caught us totally off guard and um, Josh and I were already struggling in our marriage just with communication and intimacy and everything because of a lot of it because of my depression So, we struggled through that miscarriage and then a couple months later got pregnant with Cyrus. And um, the pregnancy went well because it was something new and exciting and total different emotions and hormones and all that. And so, I made it through the pregnancy fine, had Cyrus, and then really struggled a lot with postpartum depression. And then, when Cyrus was nine months old, I got pregnant with Ceree. And I really enjoy pregnancy and so. I was excited again, my emotions were um, back to a level where I wasn't feeling too depressed and so we had Suri and I hit even more um, rock bottom with my depression, but I still refused to go and get help. Josh's job still wasn't going well, I was having to go back to work in a couple months, I was really struggling a lot with that, our marriage was still um, in a bad place and so at that time I reached out to some friends and pastors to try and get some help to deal with my depression and um, all I really got from anyone was are you uh, reading your Bible enough, are you praying enough, are you exercising enough, eating healthy enough and so I continued to keep trying that stuff and none of it helped. One night after um, I made dinner and got everyone fed, I fell apart and ran to the closet which is where I would always go um, when I was feeling really low but that night when I was in my closet I started having thoughts about what life would be like with me gone and how my kids and my husband would be better off with me gone and not having to deal with me and my depression and so Usually what would happen is I would be in my closet for a couple minutes and then Josh would come and knock on the door and beg me to come out. But tonight, that night it was different and I heard um, a knock on the door and then I heard my sister Bethany's voice begging me to come out and when I heard her voice it just clicked into my head how bad my depression had really gotten. And I was really embarrassed for one of my younger sisters to see me um, in this state of just being an absolute and complete mess. So that's when I decided that I needed to go and see a doctor. So I went and saw a doctor and saw a counselor. And they decided that um, it would be a good idea for me to be on some medication in addition to the counseling. As I started um, working on my relationship with Christ and that started deepening, I found that things in my everyday life started changing. I wanted to work on my marriage with Josh and I wanted to work towards forgiving him and getting rid of all the bitterness that I had built up in my heart about him and his job and other circumstances. And I really started enjoying being a mom and. I started being able to deal with the fact that I had to work and that that was okay and that my kids were taken care of just fine while I was gone and that was just how my life was going to be at that point. So since finding my identity in Christ, I've realized that I'm on a journey and I still battle with depression and struggle to be perfect, but I know I'm not going to be and that's okay because of what Christ has done for me.
1: So that's where we begin today, is just with honesty, that uh, the reality is you can love Jesus and you can be in the church and you can go to a really dark place and experience hopelessness and despair uh, despite the fact that Christ is within you. And this is the world that we live in, and so uh, as the community of, of God, as as the Christians, we want to be honest about what exists uh, within this church as, within, uh, as well as within our world. And, and let's, let's open up this conversation together. But first, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Jesus, we are grateful that you bring us here today. And uh, for all of the things that have gone on in our lives to bring us to this point. Father, we have experienced pain and suffering as well as much joy in life. God, there's just been, uh, it's been a long journey for all of us. And Father, we know that you've been involved with all of that, God, and um, we we wrestle with you and wonder what you're doing sometimes and wonder uh, how you could work through such broken circumstances, God, but I I just believe that that's your desire here today, is, Father, to reveal yourself to us, uh, that you are good, God, that you care about us and that you will walk with us in, in in our despair. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to start off by just throwing out a few statistics here because I think it's really important to look at the facts uh, in the data and and I was just blown away by some of the statistics. And these uh, these I didn't just make these up on the way to church. Uh these are from the uh National Institute of Mental Health. Um, I've actually sat down with two therapists from our church to, to uh, get some information about this topic in preparation for discussing this with you because I didn't want to just throw out a bunch of ideas and things from my mind. I want to give you some real tools to work with and then I want to I uh, com- come complete circle back at the end and just bring it all back to what Christ has done for us. And so that's where we're going today. But here's some statistics for you. 18% of people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with a mental health issue. 18%. That's huge. In a a church like this, in a gathering like this, there'd probably be about 50 of you in this room. Uh, that probably be about these two sections have been diagnosed with a mental illness. There's more that probably have a mental illness, but those are those who have been diagnosed. And also due to the uh, suicide statistics that we have in the U.S., that means about 15 of you uh, in the past year have had suicidal thoughts. So that would be maybe this side uh, section over here in this size of a room have at some point in this year had suicidal thoughts, which um, is huge. So if you think this doesn't affect you, it does. Uh, Can you imagine if that many people were to follow through with some of their struggles and some of their thoughts? It would just be um, absolutely uh, horrible for our community. About 35,000 people die by suicide in the U.S. each year. 35,000 people. Does that blow anybody else away? That's a lot of people. That means every 15 minutes somebody takes their life. Somebody gets to the point of such such despair and loneliness and hopelessness that they choose to remove themselves from this earth. So by the end of my sermon, three people in the United States will have taken their lives uh, because of depression, most likely. Um, contrary to popular belief, Alaska, as of 2013, is not number one in suicide per capita in the United States. Montana is, uh, which is interesting. I've always thought it was Alaska, but Montana... Uh, top the charts at number one, now we are number two, which I don't know if that means Alaska's getting better or Montana's getting worse, but it it means that it's a problem and it's a a growing issue. And more than 90% of people that die by suicide have depression or another diagnosable, treatable mental disorder. So more than 90% of people who follow through with this have some kind of depression some kind of psychological mental dis- disorder going on and and this needs to be a conversation in the church i keep coming back to this this needs to be an ongoing discussion and because it it changes how we view god doesn't it it changes how we view God. If you view God as this, this clockmaker in the sky and he's just sort of like spun the world up and sent it spinning and he's, he's ordaining, you know, the, the whole thing and it's all just been set in motion and you've got nothing to do, no influence on your life, you know, it's, if life stinks, it's because it was supposed to stink and it's supposed to be that way and God's, you know, this cruel creator up there orchestrating all of this pain for me. If that's your view of God, then, uh, then it's hard to see him as loving. And we're actually going to talk more about that next week, about God's control in this crazy, uncontrollable world. And so I want to invite you guys back next week for that. But I don't know what you've heard in the church. Maybe you've heard, listen, if you have Jesus in your heart, then you don't get depressed. You just don't. You got Jesus, so be happy you have Jesus. And we know that that's just not reality. Or people toss out little theological grenades like, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. So, you know, you'll be just fine, which is just a, it's a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, talking talking about actual temptation. It's not talking about uh, depression, and it's not talking about struggles and, and issues in our lives. It's saying, listen, he will give you a way out. God will show you a way out. But I'm here to tell you that as a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, you will deal with pain. And you will deal with despair. And honestly, that's all over the Bible. That's, that's more biblical than saying you won't, is, is the fact that you will experience pain as a follower in Jesus. Um, and so let me actually just tell you about a few people in our faith who have struggled like this. Moses. Moses leads I- Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. And they're out in the desert wandering around. You know, they, they're struggling, they're looking for food, and the people are grumbling. And they start to literally look, look back and they, and they say, I, I wish I was still in chains, I wish I was still a, a slave compared to this horrible thing that you've done to us, Moses. And so he's dealing with all this criticism from the people. And in Numbers 11, it says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses, this man being led by God, leading his people, comes to the point of saying, God, would you just take me off the face of the earth? I'm so done with my circumstances. Elijah, as a prophet, he goes to this guy named Ahab, and he has kind of this duel with, with Ahab's false prophets, and they go back and forth, and you should read it. It's a really interesting uh, back-and-forth conversation where Elijah's like, hey, where are your gods? Are they, like, uh, out to dinner? Are they sleeping? Are they in the bathroom? It sounds like your gods can't do anything. And so it's this funny back-and-forth thing, and then he ends up actually slaughtering the false prophets, and this ticks off Ahab's wife, uh, Jezebel, and Jezebel starts chasing down Elijah, and he says this in First Kings 19. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Hopelessness, despair. Paul, we read in 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul is doing the work of God, spreading the gospel, ends up in prison for his faith and finally beheaded. But this man knew opposition. He knew persecution. He knew pain in the life of a believer. And he said in 2 Corinthians 1.8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. David, we we see in the Psalms, we see him being uh, ridiculed, and he responds by saying in Psalm 22, God, why have you forsaken me? Which, interestingly enough, is the words of Jesus as well. As he is being crucified, this feeling of abandonment, this feeling that God has left you. And we also read of Jesus in the garden as he's he's dealing with such despair and hopelessness, this this pain of all the sin of the world coming upon him. He knew it was to come, and he's got this anxiety and fear. He's literally sweating drops of blood, which I don't know how uh, fearful you've ever been, but I've never sweat drops of blood. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus. Dealing with this pain and this tension between what this world is and what it should be. You can know God and you can know darkness. You, you, can, you can know struggle. And, and I don't know if you feel like, well, can I question God? Can I really do that, Brian? Some of you were brought up in, in maybe in a church that told you don't question God. You can't ask him a question. You can't say, God, why did you do this? But I'm here to tell you, if you live long enough, there will come a day where you will look up at God and go, what are you doing? There will come a day. It's probably already happened. And and it will be hard, and there will be struggles there. In the writer of Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to go there, Hebrews chapter 6 in your Bibles, um, he's speaking to a people who are lacking hope, who are lacking motivation, who are are tempted to go back to their old ways, back to Judaism. And he's saying, hold fast. In, In Hebrews 6, 17, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He says, Hold fast. If you're needing refuge today, hold fast to the hope set before you. Skip ahead to Hebrews ten twenty three, if you would. Hebrews ten twenty three. It says, "Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not go- neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There seems to be this theme of hold fast, hold fast. I mean, what kind of person do you say hold fast to? Somebody who's about to let go, right? Somebody who's struggling. And these people, they were struggling. They were wondering, God, are you still here? Are you still with us? Because we're dealing with opposition and persecution, and we don't know if you're still for us. And then he he throws out this interesting thing that says, don't neglect to meet with each other. And this is like the classic pastor text to get everybody to go to church on Sunday, right? Don't neglect meeting together. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. And, and I think people sometimes roll their eyes like, okay, I get it. You want me to go to church? But I want you to look at this context because within this context, we're talking to a people of hopelessness, a people who are struggling, who needed each other every week, every day. They needed a community next to them. And, and that's the crowd we have here today. I want you to know, you are either coming into some kind of struggle, coming out of some kind of struggle, or you're right in the middle of some kind of struggle. That's just life, isn't it? You're like, well, that's pretty hopeless, Brian. Thanks for that. No, that is that is life, is you're either coming into it like it's coming, or you're just coming out of it, or you are right in the middle of some kind of pain, some kind of struggle in life. That is life. And so we as a community are this community That This letter is written to we are dealing with all kinds of things or you are going to just just you wait And often what people do is they run to church when there's pain. They run to church when there's struggle And you might you might say that like see that we we talk about acf groups all the time And I want you to know that we don't harp on getting into community because we want to build some kind of country club Like, that's not our goal. We're not just trying to get little groups together so we can feel like, oh, look, there's a lot of groups on our website. That's awesome. It's for you. It's for us. And I know this personally. I have a group at our house. We meet every Monday night. And when we don't meet, I feel it by Wednesday. I feel it every week. When we don't get together, I don't spend time with people that I can be honest with, that I can share my heart with, that I can hear their hearts uh, from. It's hard. We need this consistently in our lives And this is going to get hard this summer, I know. And life comes up, and I get it it gets busy, but I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be in community, and not just for you, not just for you, but for the person next to you. Don't just run to church or run to life group when your life's falling apart, when your marriage is struggling, you know, when when you can't get the kids to, to settle down. I mean, run to community, not just because you need something, but because other people need you. If you're feeling hopeful right now, if you're feeling strong, you're feeling like, Brian, life's going pretty well, then, then that's a gift from God that you need to share, that you've been given to give to others. And so meet together, and here's what I also know, is that you can be in community, you can meet regularly, and you can lie your faces off, right? I mean, we can, we can all do this. You know, I struggle with this every week. It's like, you know, we have this tendency, we wanna we wanna look good, we want things that you know, it's like I'm a senior pastor, people don't wanna hear me say my life's all jacked up, but guess what? Oh man, it's pretty messed up. And and that's just reality. And you guys you guys know that about each other, and so be honest if you're gonna be in community. Share the deep stuff. Develop the trust that it takes over time to have people that know you better than you do. Stay in community. So I want to give you a couple tools as we see this issue of depression in our, in our church, in our city. Um, this is a dark month. This is April. And if you didn't know, April is the highest rate of suicides in Alaska in the entire year. Um, I was talking with a couple of therapists, and they both mentioned a couple things. The first thing is that when the sun comes out in April, you realize that your life is still the same. You know? Like, God, just get me to the summer get me through the, sun, through the, through the snow and the, the cold, and then all of a sudden the sun comes out, you know, and it's beautiful outside, and you realize you're still there. It's still you. Life's still the same. The other thing is uh, the, the reason the rates of suicide rise is because now people have the energy to actually follow through with it. In the winter, they just kind of lack motivation for everything. So this is a dark month, you guys. We need to be praying for our city. We need to be aware of the people that are around us. I'm not okay with the statistics of this, and I hope that you're not as well. But here's some tools um, just to spot depression. How do we spot it? How do we notice if it's, if it's really getting that bad? The first thing is this. Are you persistently feeling sad, anxious, empty, hopeless, guilty, or worthless? persistently, like, is this becoming your routine? Do you wake up in the morning with these feelings and then go to bed with these feelings? Is this kind of how your life is becoming? Because we all feel these feelings occasionally. But if this becomes a pattern in your life, you may be dealing with depression or somebody you know may be dealing with depression. Number two, do your feelings negatively impact your ability to work, play, or relate? Has it gotten to the point where you can't really do your job very well anymore? Where, where you are actually unable to do what you are meant to do? How about in your relationships? You have pulled back from your relationships. And it's, it's one thing to be reclusive. It's one thing to be the kind of person that I don't have a ton of friends and, and that's okay. But when you start cutting ties... And cutting off relationships and friendships that that should be helpful to you, you may be dealing with some kind of depression in your life. Number three, have you lost motivation to do the things that you love? Think of all the things that you enjoy doing. Do you still enjoy doing some of those things? You know, do you still get out and, and take a hike once in a while? Do you get out and, uh, you know, work on the car and, and take on a project? Do you do those things? And I'm not just talking about like, well, Brian, I used to play Xbox all night long and now I don't. Well, that's probably okay. You know, like maybe you got a kid now and you're growing up a little bit. Like it's okay. Uh, there are certain things that will just change. Your Your, your tastes may change, but... If, if you're just not seeing a way, an outlet for your joy and you're not seeing any motivation for the things that you used to love, you might want to take a look at that and see, am I, am I depressed or dealing with depression? I, I heard a guy say this week, uh, I, was, uh, I was actually uh, watching a, a video of a guy dealing with depression, he, and he said, true depression isn't to only be depressed when life is tough, it's to be depressed when life is good. Do you look at your circumstances and you look around and say, life is pretty decent. It's not bad. I mean, there's always somebody who maybe has a problem with you. There's always some kind of issue at work. There's always something to uh, be concerned about or worried about. That's just life. But, you know, when, when you look at your life, it's pretty good. The circumstances are not that that dire, that bad. But you can't seem to break out of depression. If that's the case, maybe you're dealing with with true depression. And you need to know this, too. If you're... You don't have to be suicidal to be dealing with depression. Like, you don't have to wait till that point where you've lost all hope and you just feel like the world would be better off without you to be dealing with depression. It comes much sooner than that. And so what can you do? Here are a few tips just how to begin. What do we, what do, we do to deal with this? And the first is this. Survey your health. Just look at your life. Malia talked about this a little bit, and this is not the fix-all. This is not like, oh, you're feeling depressed, you just need to sleep more. That it doesn't fix everything, but it can certainly be a cause of it. Survey your health. Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you physically sick? I had a friend who was struggling with depression for like a year, and he actually went into the doctor and he had this infection in his body that he didn't know about. He got some antibiotics. In a couple weeks, he was a different guy. He just got the right medication his body was just unhealthy and so that can be depressing right when your body's not working the way it's supposed to that can be really depressing and i want to touch on a little something that malia said she said that she went to a doctor she got some medication here's the deal there's a stigma that it comes with this as well of like you know oh if you have jesus you don't need medication would you would you tell somebody that if they broke their arm you know Like, ah, you know. And the thing is, there are certain sects of Christianity that would say that. They would say, just just pray. Pray that arm gets better, you know. I'll tell you what. If I break my arm, I'm going to the doctor. And if it hurts, he's going to give me drugs, and I'm going to enjoy them. And (laughs) that's just reality. So I want to empower you, if you're depressed, to go get checked out. Go to the doctor. Let them help you. Again, don't run to that. That's not your first thing, but let somebody join with you in the diagnostic process. If your car is making a funny noise or it's not running right, the first thing that you do is pop the hood, right? And you just stare at it, right? You don't know what you're looking at. I mean, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I just, I'm looking for something that's wrong here, you know, underneath this cover. And so just pop the hood on your life. Look at your routines and your patterns. Are you doing things, just kind of take an audit of your week. Are there things that you're doing that are making your life unhealthy? Because it all starts to add up. It all starts to add up. Maybe you just had a new baby, and, and you aren't getting any sleep, and you're not eating well. I mean, it just all starts to add up. I mean, some, I don't want to make light of things, but sometimes people just need a Snickers bar, right? I mean, <laughs> sometimes you gotta, just got to have a Snickers bar, you know? I, getting a little hangry, I just need a Snickers bar. So eat well, take care of your physical health, and that's going to help your emotional health as well. Number two, slow the pace. Just slow down sometimes. Uh, We as a society need to hear this. We're busy. We're busy. When is the last time you single-tasked? Anybody? Anybody single-task anymore? (laughs) No, that's, that's not efficient. You can always be doing at least three things at one time, right? Amanda and I are always talking about this. How do we how do we shut down our phones and actually look each other in the eye once in a while? I mean, how do we give our kids the attention that they deserve? I mean, we're always doing so much, trying to be really efficient with our times. When's the last time you just read a book? Anybody read a book? Like a paper one? It doesn't glow, you know? Read a paper book. Ah man, it's awesome. I picked one up the other day. It was it was beautiful. There's something about a paper book that's just awesome. Read a book once in a while. Sit down and just cover to cover. Just, it's so good for you. I want to empower you guys. As parents, being busy doing everything that your kids ask from you, keeping them in every single sport possible, is not serving your children well. Uh, there is a point that you have to draw lines. If you think that running your marriage into the ground is helping your children, it's not. It's not. They need parents who are healthy. Any parents who, who will love them, you know? So so take the time to make some space in your life. And I'll confess this. I have this tendency too. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and um, he, he and I have been getting together uh, once a month to do sort of a spiritual formation conversation. He sits me down, makes sure I'm being healthy as a person. Um, and, and so he's like, he, he asked me, how's things going? Is it, is it busy and I said this, and as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that's probably bad. I said, I, said, I really want to really lead well, but I don't have time to be healthy. And I was like, that's probably not good, is it? He's like, that's not good at all. That's a bad thing. Because there's this thing, right, that tells us if, if you just do more, if you're just more efficient, then you're going to have more free time. How's that working out for you? <laughs> it never works out, right? You just find more things to do. There's just always something else waiting for your attention. You have to force it. You have to cut something off, which stinks because we want to be able to do everything. But at some point, you have to draw some lines and choose what really matters in your life. We see Jesus in in Luke 6. He goes away to the mountaintop to pray. If Jesus needs to get away from the crowds and pray once in a while, then you do too. You need space. And he would do anything. He would go out in a boat. He'd just like run from the crowd and just get out in the woods. I mean, if you need to do that, man, I empower you to do that. Just go, go to the woods, go sit on a stump somewhere and get your mind straight. And it's going to help you. It's going to help you to see the world differently. Number three, seek a new perspective. Seek a new perspective. I want you to flip over to, over to 2 Corinthians twelve seven. This is a really famous passage. It's one of my favorite passages. As Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, you might have it stitched in a pillow somewhere in your house. I don't know. I mean, it's a really, it's a really common passage, but there is so much uh, truth for us in this topic right here. First, uh, 2 Corinthians twelve seven It says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I have pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul is in pain. Whatever this is, it's bad. People have speculated about what Paul's thorn was. We don't know what it was We just know it's really bad and that Paul wanted to get rid of it. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. This doesn't mean just three times I sat down and prayed. This means three seasons of my life were spent dedicated to pleading with God that he would remove this pain from my life. Maybe he gathered with his friends and and, uh, other believers and he said, hey, would you guys pray for me and with me over this? And uh, he said he spent three seasons together praying, God, take this away from me, and God has not taken it away. And this makes sense for us. This is what we do with pain, right? We say, God, get me out of this. Just get me out of this. And so my question for you is, what if Paul's thorn was depression? What if, what if it was really depression? What if it was, that was the thing that he just couldn't get out of? He just couldn't get on top of it. And it says in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul says, Listen, it seems like this isn't going away anytime soon. And God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. This is where you find me, is in the valleys. This is where you're looking for me. How many of you know that when life's going good, God doesn't seem that important? I know that. How many of you come running to the cross as soon as either you screw it up or somebody else screws it up for you? You're like, Jesus, where are you? I think God knows that. And so there are certain areas of our lives that I just can't promise you will get better. And God doesn't say he's going to take the pain away from you. He promises he's going to walk with you through it. And there's so much hope to be known in that. That God is with you in the pain, in the struggle. I want you to know this. Depression is something to deal with. It's something that we want to respond to. It may be a symptom of other stuff, but I'll tell you this, depression itself isn't sin. If you just feel like a sinful person because you struggle with this, depression isn't sin. It may be a symptom of sin, and what you do with depression may be sin. When you choose not to deal with it, when you choose to respond to it with unhealthy behavior, and I'll tell you this, one of the questions that I think always comes up in this topic of depression and suicide is, is, is suicide the unforgivable sin? There are people that believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin, and if, if you were to take your life, that, that that would be it, that God could not forgive you. But in my Bible, it says, neither height nor death, depth can keep me away from the love of Jesus. I think that involves suicide as well. But I'll tell you this, it never makes sense. It never makes sense. Because as somebody dealing with despair and pain, aware of that kind of struggle, I would think the last thing that you would want to do, even if you're trying to make the world a better place, is pass that pain on. And I've seen people wrestle with this. I've seen the the overflow of this behavior into families and into churches, and it's rough. It is really rough. So I wanna give you guys a tool for this that uh, one of the people I was talking with gave me. This is a very simple tool to deal with um, this type of thinking. It says this, feeling plus thinking equals behavior. Feeling plus thinking equals behavior. This is a very simple tool, but but there's there's a lot of truth to be taken out of this. Traditionally, I think what people want you to do, um, or maybe you've heard it preached this way of, just stop being depressed. Stop feeling that way. How's that working out? Can you just stop feeling depressed? Man, I'd love to. Maybe if you just tell me a couple more times to stop being depressed, then I'll, then I'll do it. You know? Stop feeling, or maybe they're like, hey, listen, you're acting poorly. What you're doing, you're, you're making bad decisions. Just stop making bad decisions. How many of you have success just stop stopping your bad decisions? Man, it, it doesn't seem to work that way. There's this term in the middle, thinking. Feeling plus Thinking equals behavior. And I feel like thinking is the key to understanding this. Because how we feel is going to be how we feel in a situation. And and there's something to respond to in that moment. And, and this is where the term in the in uh, in Christian circles, the term repentance comes from. And I want to be careful walking this line because people have maybe told you, hey, repent from your depression. Which to them means, hey, just Just stop being depressed. Or how many of you have heard repentance talked about in this way? Um, Repentance is just turning around. Just turning around. Have you guys heard it talked about? Just turning around to the other direction. Biblical repentance is not turning around. Biblical repentance is a changing of the mind. Repentance is this, in Greek, is this term metanoia. Meta meaning change, like metamorphosis. Noia meaning mind. And so true biblical repentance is not just, hey, stop being bad. Start being good. Stop being depressed. Stop feeling this way. It's literally to reframe the way that you view a certain area of your life. To reframe the pain that you've experienced. To look at it through a new lens. It's kind of like this. If, if I was sitting by a fire and, uh, you know, I'm sitting in a lawn chair and the fire pops and a, and a golden ember lands in my lap, I have an opportunity there to either stand it and be like, oh, this hurts, or I can just flip it off, right? Just get rid of the ember, just... Knock it off. And that's kind of the process of the believer is, is we all have thoughts. And the Bible talks about capturing these thoughts and, and, and taking them captive and, and using the truth of God's word that you've got written in your heart. As you read the Bible, as you know the, the promises and the truths of who God is, taking those things and applying those to your situation and then changing your mind about it. Like, I'm, I'm going to think about this differently. This is true biblical repentance, Number four is this, solicit God's opinion above all. Would you guys place God's opinion over anyone else's in your life? And this, I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody because just to kind of full disclosure, my tendency is to really care what people think. Uh, just so you know, that's, that's in me. That is my tendency is to really worry about you and uh, to want people to like me. I really like it when people like me. Am I alone up here? Anybody else? I, I like it when people like me, which I don't know if I'm in the right pr- profession for this because I don't know if you know, but people don't always like pastors. They, you know, I mean, we're all pretty lovable people, but, you know, I, sometimes people don't like pastors and, uh, and and maybe it's rightfully so. I don't know. But it's a hard, it's a hard thing. And so I, I was struggling with this becoming a pastor, a, a senior pastor about six months ago. I jumped into this and I was wrestling with, well, what's that going to mean? I'm going to have to be very aware of that tendency. Because you can't just try to please people. Uh, man, that's going to kill you. So I knew that. And I had this feeling like, man, I, I just I don't want to lose my joy. I don't want to lose my, my, my perspective on what God says about me because of what other people say about me. And so I was wrestling with that. And, and I remember I went to the coffee shop, went to Jitters over here, and I stopped in and I, I walked past a, a mother of one of our teenagers that I hadn't seen in a long time. And she's like, Hey, hey, I heard you were think you were going to be the senior pastor at this church. And I'm like, Yeah. And she's like, I just hope you don't lose your joy. I'm like, Oh, dang it. Affirmation of my fear. And so just wrestling with that, man. I just, I don't want to lose my joy. And so God has just impressed so deeply on my heart. Uh, it's just been really good. I've just heard so much that, uh, of God just saying, hey, nothing anybody says about you matters as much as what God says about you. And there's a lot of people that have done um, some really horrible things because of what people have said about them. So I want you to place God's opinion above all other people's opinion. Uh, Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who you are. God gave himself for you, and you know what you are? You're crucified. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. And you know know what dead people don't do? They don't care what other people think. That's the thing about dead people. And so that's who we are as a church. And so I was preparing for this message. I feel like this is the, this is one of the key points here for this morning. In all of this topic, everything in me wants to just tell you, you know what? You're so awesome. Jesus just loves you. You're so good. Oh man, you're just so great. No, just, just feel better about yourself. And that's what therapy can often do, you know, and like just modern self-help is like, hey, just feel better about yourself, you know, just self-esteem. And you know what? That's going to last like five minutes. And you're gonna get out of here and you're gonna deal with the pain of life and be like, man, this does not sustain me. And I felt like what God was saying to me is, is, is that the core of this is the fact that you are dead. There is no more you. There is only Christ in this world is not about you. That's where peace comes from. That's the peace that we have as believers is this knowledge that life isn't about us. It's no longer about what people say about us because listen, I don't exist anymore. It's Jesus within me. It's no more you, now it's Christ within you. So it doesn't matter what you've done before, it's gone. That person's dead. They are crucified with Christ. And it's no longer them who lives, but Christ within you. So who you are at your very core is something intrinsically very, very good because you are Jesus. So if you have followed Christ, that is the promise for you today. Know that truth. And I think that's going to set you free better than just trying to convince yourself that you're better than you are without Christ. Because that's just a lie, isn't it? We need Jesus. We need to be defined by him. And we need to know that depression is an issue, but it's not your identity. It's an issue. It's something we should deal with. It's something to be honest about, but it's not who you are. Number five, the last point is this, signal for help. Would you guys just signal for help? I just hope that as you guys leave the church today, if you need some help, that you would signal for help. On the bottom of your inserts is a whole list of resources, places that you can go to get some help. We would love to help direct you in the right direction if you need some help. Would you signal for help? So I've got, uh, I've got three kids, and uh, we were teaching our middle daughter, Avriana, to, to swim. And apparently I tell a lot of uh, swimming stories at church. But um, so we're teaching her to swim. We were out in Wasilla at the Alaska Club pool. And they have like a little kiddie pool that's, I don't know, it's about chest deep. And all the kids are swimming around. And Adriana had been floating around in her her, uh, life preserver. And she hadn't quite picked up swimming yet, but every kid, they get to this point where they don't want that thing on anymore. They want to try it for themselves. And so I've got Grayson, who's my little guy. He's three, and we're out floating around. He's got his floaties on, you know, and he's floating around making bubbles in the water. And Avery's over on the stairs. And I'm like, Avery, Anna, you stay on the stairs. Okay, Daddy, you know, I won't get in the water. And so I, I turn around, and I'm, I'm dealing with, with Grayson and keeping him afloat, and we're having fun. And I'm, I'm turned around for a couple of minutes, and then I... I kind of turn, I catch out of the corner of my eye this movement and I turn and I see this woman and she is just like running right at me. I'm full board, just like coming at me, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? Is she gonna do like a, like a cannonball down to the kiddie pool or what's going on? And she jumps in the water and lands right in front of me and comes up out of the water with my daughter who's spitting water out of her mouth and she's coughing and she hands me my kid and I'm like, I'm a horrible father. Again, this is kind of becoming a pattern. If you guys were here last week, don't ask me to watch your kids. I just, this will cut down on the babysitting request. Yeah, it's, it's adding up. Anyway, full disclosure. So anyway, she, she's like choking on the water and I had no idea. I had no idea. And, and people talk about drowning that way, that drowning is a very calm death. That when people go under the water, for whatever reason, it's not this, like, thrashing that you see in movies. It's like they just kind of go under and disappear. There was, there was nothing. There was no way to know. And, you know, I was just thinking about that. Like, this is, this is our culture. This is the people around us. We just threw out all these statistics that show you that within our church, even, there are people that are desperately in need of help. And some of you either aren't watching for the signals or some of you aren't making the signals. And and we need to be very, very aware of this. We need to be in community. We need to be with people who know us better than we do so that we can see the signals. And see, we are supposed to be a community of hope. That's, That's our goal as a church, a people anchored in Christ, and when we are a people anchored in Christ, a people of hope, that is a catalyst for everything else that we do, everything in our community. We're not doing things just to get God to love us more. We're not doing things to get to heaven. We're doing things because we have been given hope, and we want to grow in this hope. Colossians 1.3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he's like, hey, church, I've heard of how you love people. I've heard how you care for people, how you are agents of hope. We talked in the code that we're agents of hope in dark places. I've heard that you do this, and I know that you do this because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's why you love people. That's why you care for people because of hope. Hope always brings forth love. That's my last point. Hope always brings forth love. If you have hope, then you have love. And if you're lacking love, you know what? You might lack hope. We need to go back to the core, back to the propellant for everything that we do as followers of Jesus. And what happens is it becomes this, this process where we grow in hope and then we give more love and then we grow more in hope and then we become more loving and it's this great journey. People catch the love of Jesus and they they get hope and so then they get that hope and they give more love and that's the movement of the church. That's what we're supposed to be is this movement of the gospel. Romans 5, 4 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So again, I can't, I can't tell you the suffering won't stop. I can't tell you that become a Christian and Jesus is gonna make your life better. Far too many people have been sold that bill of goods and they've been really disappointed that it doesn't just get better. But the truth of it is, the hope of it is that Jesus is with you in it. He's with you in the pain and that you're never alone. And then we have this hope for something that is to come. We have the symbol of our faith. It's, it's the cross. And it's interesting that the cross is this symbol of torture. It's a symbol of pain. And we wear them around our necks and we talk about the cross. We have them on the walls. And they remind us of the pain suffered by Christ. And the cross, for us, should be a, a reminder that, you know what? Barring the second coming, you're going to experience pain, just like Christ did and we're going to know hurt and we're going to know opposition but it's interesting as I was reading the early church uh, the first century Christians under Roman persecution their symbol of faith was not the cross their symbol of faith was the anchor which is interesting because the anchor represented this immovable stable force which is what we need right? We need something immovable. We need something stable. And every person in this room, at some point, you are gonna, you're going to face impossible opposition. And in that moment, you're going to come face to face with either the strength or weakness of whatever you have anchored your soul to. And that's what we talk about here today is that Christ anchors our souls he is an immovable force always dependable always with us always self-sacrificial and loving us the bible says these present sufferings are nothing in comparison to the glory soon to be revealed to us in christ and we will be set free from the corruption of this world which will be replaced with freedom beyond comprehension isn't that beautiful Man, there's so much joy in that. There's this day coming when the sky will be ripped open and every wrong will be made right and all of our sin will be taken away completely. There's no more wrestling between this new person that we've become and that old person that seems to still cling on to our lives. We will be completely made whole. We look forward to that day, but in the meantime, we are grounded in the secure hope of Jesus. And as the church We give it away. It's what we do. We are the only people on earth who carry a message of hope that truly anchors the soul. And if you won't tell them, who will? So I pray that this week as a community that we would go out into our world being agents of hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your grace. God I know there's pain in this room today. There are people that have lost loved ones. There are people that are dealing with physical issues with mental issues. God there are people dealing with children that are making bad choices. There are people that are dealing with parents who have made bad choices. God there's there there are broken marriages. There's there's divorce. There are people that have gone through some very difficult, difficult things that were never their choice. And Father, in all of these circumstances, you have been with us. And today, God, I pray that your hope would wash over us. I pray it wouldn't be a hope grounded in some kind of idea that we are the center of the universe, but in the idea that this is all about you. You. And Father, you would give us perspective to look beyond our own struggles and beyond our own pains to see, God, that you have a greater narrative happening in the world around us, a greater story that is all created to bring you glory. Father, that our greatest aspiration wouldn't be just to feel better about ourselves, but would be to honor you through the pain and the suffering. Father, mend us together as a a church, as a community, as people. Give us grace with each other. I pray there'd be authenticity and and openness in the car ride home today. God, at the dinner table and even this evening as, as people talk, as families discuss, as friends discuss, God, that this would be an open conversation because we're all hopeless sometimes. And we all need to be reminded of what you've done for us. I pray all this in Jesus's name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you.